Escape Pod Episode 222 Today's story Infestation by Garth Nix Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Alistair, your host, and as Halloween knocks on our doors and demands we give it chocolate or it'll stab us, it seems only right that I should hop over the fence and tell you that the calls are in fact coming from inside the podcast. But that's beside the point. The point, and I mean that literally, is provided by the incomparable Garth Nix this week. Garth is the best-selling author of series like The Old Kingdom and The Seventh Tower. His short fiction has appeared everywhere from Eidolon to Fast Ships, Black Sails, and his work is a must for anyone even a little interested in modern fantasy. This story appeared in By Blood We Live, edited by John Joseph Adams and available from Nightshade Books. Your narrator this week is Jeff Michelli, a resident of southern Louisiana and a steely-eyed cybersecurity G-man by day. When not out saving the net, Jeff does computer forensics work, chases his 15-month-old daughter around the house and yard, plots what new home automation gadgets he can possibly get away with, and narrate short stories. We're very pleased to have him. So, clear your barrels, check your loadout, grab your gear. Because I have a story for you, and I promise you, it's story time. Infestation by Garth Nix They were the usual motley collection of freelance vampire hunters. Two men, wearing combinations of jungle camouflage and leather. Two women, one almost indistinguishable from the men, though with a little more style in her leather armor accessories. And the other looking like she was about to assault the south face of a serious mountain. Only her mouth was visible, a small oval of flesh not covered by a balaclava, mirror shades, climbing helmet, and hood. They had the usual weapons, four or five short wooden stakes and belt loops, snap-holstered handguns of various calibers, all doubtless chambered with wooden-death, low-velocity timber-tipped rounds, big silver-edged bowie or other hunting knife, worn on the hip or strapped to a boot, and crystal vials of holy water hung like small grenades on pocket loops. Protection, likewise, ticked the usual boxes, leather neck and wrist guards, Leather and woven wire reinforced chaps and shoulder pauldrons over the camo. Leather gloves with metal knuckle plates. Army or climbing helmets. And lots of crosses, oh yeah. Particularly on the two men. Big silver crosses. Little wooden crosses. Medium-sized turned ivory crosses. Hanging off everything they could hang off. In other words, all four of them were lumbering, bumbling mountains of stuff that meant they would be easy meat for all but the newest and dumbest vampires. They all looked at me as I walked up. I guess their first thought was to wonder what the hell I was doing there, in the advertised meeting place, outside a church at 4.30 p.m. on a winter's day, while the last rays of sun were supposedly making the consecrated ground a double no-go zone for vampires. "'You're in the wrong place, surfer boy,' growled one of the men. I was used to this reaction. I guess I don't look like a vampire hunter much anyway, and I particularly didn't look like one that afternoon. I'd been on the beach that morning, not knowing where I might head to later, so I was still wearing a yellow quicksilver t-shirt, and what might be loosely described as old and faded blue board shorts, but 
ragged might be more accurate. I hadn't had shoes on, but I'd picked up a pair of sandals on the way. Tan Birkenstocks. Very comfortable. I always prefer sandals to shoes. Old habits, I guess. I don't look my age, either. I always looked young, and nothing's changed. Though boy was a bit rough coming from anyone under 45. And the guy who'd spoken was probably closer to 30. People older than that usually leave the vampire hunting to the government, or paid professionals. I'm in the right place, I said, matter of fact, not getting into any aggression or anything. I lifted my 1968 vintage vinyl Pan Am airline bag. Got my stuff right here. This is the meeting place for the vampire hunt. Yes, said the mountain climbing woman. Are you crazy? asked the man who'd spoken to me first. This isn't some kind of doper excursion. We're going up against a nest of vampires. I nodded and gave him a kind smile. I know. At least ten of them, I would say. I swung past and had a look around on the way here. At least, I did if you're talking about that condemned factory up on the River Heights. What? But it's cordoned off, and the vamps will be dug in till nightfall. I counted the patches of disturbed earth, I explained. The cordon was off. I guess they don't bring it up to full power until the sun goes down. So, who are you guys? Ten, exclaimed the second man, not answering my first question. You're sure? At least ten, I replied, but only one ancient. The others are all pretty new, judging from the spoil. You're making this up, said the first man. There's maybe five tops. They were seen together and tracked back. That's when the cordon was established this morning. I shrugged and half unzipped my bag. I'm Jenny, said the mountain climber, belatedly answering my question. The, the vampires got my sister, three years ago. When I heard about this infestation, I claimed the relative's right. I've got a twelve-month permit, said the second man. Plan to turn professional. Oh yeah, my name's Carl. I'm Susan, said the second woman. This is our third vampire hunt. Mike's in mine, I mean. She's my wife said the belligerent Mike. We've both got 12-month permits. You better be legal, too, if you want to join us. I have a special license, I replied. The sun had disappeared behind the church tower, and the streetlights were flicking on. With the bag unzipped, I was ready for a surprise. Not that I thought one was about to happen, at least not immediately, unless I choose to spring one. You can call me Jay. Jay? asked Susan. Close enough, I replied. Does someone have a plan? Yeah, said Mike. We stick together. No hot dogging off or chasing down wounded vamps or anything like that. We go in as a team, and we come out as a team. Interesting, I said. Is there more to it? Mike paused to fix me with what he obviously thought was his steely gaze. I met it, and after a few seconds, he looked away. Maybe it's the combination of very pale blue eyes and dark skin but not many people look at me directly for too long. It might just be the eyes. There have been quite a few cultures who think of very light blue eyes as the color of death. Perhaps that lingers, resonating in the subconscious, even of modern folk. We go through the front door, he said. We throw flares ahead of us. The vamps should all be digging out on the old factory floor. It's the only place where the earth is accessible. So we go down the fire stairs, throw a few more flares out of the door... Then go through and back up against a wall. We'll have a clear field of fire to take them down. They'll be groggy for a couple of hours yet, slow to move. But if one or two manage to get close, we stake them. 
The young ones will be slow and dazed, I said, but the ancient one will be active soon after sundown, even if it stays where it is, and it's not dug in on the factory floor. It's in a humongous clay pot outside an office on the fourth floor. We take it first, then, said Mike. Not that I'm sure I believe you. It's up to you, I said. I had my own ideas about dealing with the ancient, but they would wait. No point upsetting Mike too early. There's one more thing. What? asked Carl. There's a fresh-made vampire around, from last night. It will still be able to pass for human for a few more days. It won't be dug in, and it may not even know it's infected. So? asked Mike. We kill everything in the infested area. That's all legal. How do you know this stuff? asked Jenny. You're a professional, aren't you? said Carl. How long have you been pro? I'm not exactly a professional, I said, but I've been hunting vampires for quite a while. Can't have been that long, said Mike. Well, you'd know better than to go in after him in just a t-shirt. What have you got in that bag? Sawn-off shotgun? Just a stake and a knife, I replied. I'm a traditionalist. Shouldn't we be going? The sun was fully down, and I knew the ancient, at least, would already be reaching up through the soil its mildewed, mottled hands gripping the rim of the earthenware pot that had once held a palm or something equally impressive outside the factory manager's office. Truck's over there, said Mike, pointing to a flashy new silver pickup. You can ride in the back, surfer boy. Fresh air's a wonderful thing. As it turned out, Carl and Jenny wanted to sit in the back, too. I sat on a toolbox that still had shrink wrap around it. Jenny sat on a spare tire, and Carl stood looking over the cab, scanning the road, as if a vampire might suddenly jump out when we were stopped at the lights. Do you have a cross? Jenny asked me after we'd gone a mile or so in silence. Unlike Mike and Carl, she wasn't festooned with them, but she had a couple around her neck. She started to take a small wooden one off, lifting it by the chain. I shook my head and raised my t-shirt up under my arms, to show the scars. Jenny recoiled in horror and gasped, and Carl looked around, hand going for his forty-one caliber Glock. I couldn't tell whether that was jumpiness or good training. He didn't draw and shoot, which I guess meant good training. I let the t-shirt fall, but it was up long enough for both of them to see the hackwork tracery of scars that made up a kind of T-shape on my chest and stomach. But it wasn't a T. It was a Tau cross, one of the oldest Christian symbols, and still one that vampires feared the most, though none but the most ancient knew why they fled from it. Is that a, a cross? asked Carl. I nodded. That's so hardcore, said Carl. Why didn't you just have it tattooed? It probably wouldn't work so well, I said. And I didn't have it done. It was done to me. I didn't mention that there was an equivalent tracery of scars on my back as well. These two towel crosses, front and back, never faded, though my other scars always disappeared only a few days after they healed. Who would... Jenny started to ask, but she was interrupted by Mike banging on the rear window of the cab, with the butt of his pistol, reconfirming my original assessment that he was the biggest danger to all of us, except for the ancient vampire. I wasn't worried about the young ones, but I didn't know which ancient it was, and that was cause for concern. If it had been insisted since the drop, it would be in the first flush of its full strength. I hoped it had been around for a long time, lying low and steadily degrading, only recently resuming its mission against humanity. We're there, said Carl, unnecessarily. The cordon fence was fully established now, sixteen feet high and lethally electrified, with old-fashioned limelights burning every ten feet along the fence. 
the sound of hissing oxygen and hydrogen jets, music to my ears. Vampires loathe the limelight. Gaslight has a lesser effect, and electric light hardly bothers them at all. It's the intensity of the naked flame they fear. The fire brigade was standing close by because of the limelights, which, though modernized, were still occasionally prone to massive accidental combustion, and the local police department was there en masse to enforce the cordon. I saw the bright white bulk of the state vampire eradication team semi-trailer parked off to one side. If we volunteers failed, they would go in. Though given the derelict state of the building and reasonable space between it and the nearest residential area, it was more likely they'd just get the Air Force to do a fuel-air explosion dump. The VET personnel would be out and about already, making sure no vampires managed to get past the cordon. There would be crossbow snipers on the upper floors of the surrounding buildings, ready to shoot fire-hardened oak quarrels into vampire heads. It wasn't advertised by the ammo manufacturers, but a big old vampire could take 40 or 50 wooden death or equivalent rounds to the head and chest before going down. A good inch-diameter, yard-long quarrel or stake worked so much better. There would be a VET quick response team somewhere close as well, outfitted in the latest metal mesh armor, carrying the automatic weapons the volunteers were not allowed to use, with good reason, given the frequency with which volunteer vampire hunters killed each other, even when only armed with handguns, stakes, and knives. I waved at the window of the three-story warehouse where I'd caught my glimpse of a crossbow sniper, earning a puzzled glance from Carl and Jenny, then jumped down. A police sergeant was already walking over to us, his long, harsh, lime-lit shadow preceding him. Naturally, Mike intercepted him before he could choose who he wanted to talk to. We're the volunteer team. I can see that, said the sergeant. Who's the kid? He pointed at me and frowned. The kid stuff was getting monotonous. I don't look that young. Twenty, at least, I would have thought. He says his name's Jay. He's got a special license. That's what he says. Let's see it then, says the sergeant, with a smile that suggested he was looking forward to arresting me and delivering a three-hour lecture, or perhaps a meeting with a piece of rubber pipe. It wasn't always easy to decipher smiles. I'll take it from here, sergeant, said an officer who came up from behind me, fast and smooth. He was in the new metal mesh armor, like a wetsuit, with webbing belt and harness over it, to hold stakes, knives, WP grenades, which were actually effective against the vamps, unlike the holy water ones, and handgun. He had an HNK MP5 PDW slung over his shoulder. You go and check the cordon. But Lieutenant, you don't want me to take... I said check the cordon. The sergeant retreated, smile replaced by a scowl of frustration. The VET lieutenant ignored him. Licenses, please, he said. He didn't look at me, and unlike the others, I didn't reach for the plasticated, hologrammed, data-chipped card that was the latest version of the Volunteer Vampire Hunter license. They held their licenses up, and the reader that was somewhere in the lieutenant's helmet picked up the data, and his earpiece whispered whether they were valid or not. Since he was nodding, we all knew they were valid before he spoke. Okay, you're good to go wherever you want. Good luck. What about him? asked Mike, gesturing at me with his thumb. Him too said the lieutenant. He still didn't look at me. Some of the VET are funny like that. They seem to think I'm like an albatross or something. A sign of bad luck. I suppose it's because wherever the vampire infestations are really bad, I have a tendency to show up as well. He's already been checked in. We'll open the gate in five, if that suits you. Sure, says Mike. He lumbered over to face me. There's something funny going on here, and I don't like it. 
So you just stick to the plan, okay? Actually, your plan sucks, I said calmly. So I've decided to change it. You four should go down to the factory floor and take out the vampires there. I'll go up against the ancient. Alone? said Jenny. Shouldn't we stick together like Mike says? Nope, I replied. It'll be out and unbending itself now. You'll all be too slow. Call this slow, Mike started to say, as he tried to poke me forcefully in the chest with his forefinger. But I was already standing behind him. I tapped him on the shoulder, and as he swung around, ran behind him again. We kept this up for a few minutes before Carl stopped him. See what I mean? And an ancient vampire is faster than me. That was Blarney, or at least I hoped it was. I'd met ancient vampires who were as quick as I was, but not actually faster. Sometimes I did wonder what would happen if one day I was a fraction slower and one finally got me for the good and all. Some days, I kind of hoped that it would happen. But not this day. I hadn't had to go up against any vampires or anything else for over a month. I'd been surfing for the last two weeks, hanging out on the beach, eating well, drinking a little wine, and even letting down my guard long enough to spend a couple of nights with a girl who surfed better than me, and didn't mind having sex in total darkness with a guy who kept his t-shirt on and an old airline bag under his pillow. I was still feeling good from this little holiday, though I knew it would only ever be that. A few weeks snatched out of, Okay, panted Mike. He wasn't as stupid as I'd feared, but he was a lot less fit than he looked. You do your thing. We'll take the vampires on the factory floor. Good, I replied. Presuming I survive, I'll come down and help you. What do, what do we do if, well, if, if we're losing? asked Jenny. She had her head well down, her chin almost tucked into her chest, and her body language screamed out that she was both scared and miserable. I mean, if, if there are more vampires, or, or if the ancient went, We fight or die, said Carl. No one is allowed back to the cordon until after dawn. Oh, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I read the brochure. You don't have to go in, I said. You can wait out here. I, I think I will, she said, without looking at the others. Just can't, now, I'm here, I just can't face it. Great, muttered Mike. One of us down already. She's too young, said Susan. I was surprised she'd speak up against Mike. I had her down as his personal doormat. Don't give her a hard time, Mike. No time for anything, I said. They're getting ready to power down the gate. A cluster of regular police officers and VET agents were taking up positions around the gate in the cordon fence. We walked over, the others switching on helmet lights, drawing their handguns and probably silently uttering last-minute prayers. The sergeant, who'd wanted to give me a hard time, looked at Mike, who gave him the thumbs up. A siren sounded out a slow whoop, 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 as the sergeant of the cordon fence powered down, the indicators along the top rail fading from a warning red to a dull green. Go, 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 shouted Mike as he jogged forward, with Susan and Carl at his heels. I followed a few meters behind, but not too far. That sergeant had the control box for the gate, and I didn't trust him not to close it on my back and power it up at the same time. I really didn't want to know what 6,600 volts at 500 milliamps would do to my unusual physiology, or show anyone else what didn't happen, more to the point. On the other hand, I didn't want to go ahead of Mike and company either, because I already knew what being shot in the back by Ancient felt like. With lead and wooden bullets, not to mention ceramic-cased tungsten-tipped penetrator rounds, 
and I didn't want to repeat the experience. They rushed to the front door, Mike kicking it in and bullying through. The wood was rotten, and the top panel had already fallen off, so this was less of an achievement than it might have been. Carl was quick with the flares, confirming his thorough training. Mike, on the other hand, just kept going, so the light was behind him as he opened the fire door to the left of the lobby. Bad move. There was a vampire behind the door, and while it was no ancient, it wasn't newly hatched either. It wrapped its arms around Mike, holding on with the filaments that lined its forelegs. Though to an uneducated observer, it looked just like a fairly slight, tattered rag-wearing human, bear-hugging him with rather longer-than-usual arms. Mike screamed as the vampire started chewing on his helmet, ripping through the Kevlar layers like a buzzsaw through soft wood, pausing only to spit out bits of the material. Only steel helmets are better than the modern variety, but we live in an age that values only the new. Vamps like to get a good grip around their prey, particularly ones who carry weapons. There was nothing Mike could do, and as the vamp was already backing into the stairwell, only a second or two for someone else to do something. The vampire fell to the ground, its forearm filaments coming loose with a sticky popping sound, though they probably hadn't penetrated Mike's heavy clothes. I pulled the splinter out of its head and put the stake of almost 2,000-year-old timber back in the bag before the others got a proper look at the odd silver sheen that came from deep within the wood. Carl dragged Mike back into the flare-lit light as Susan covered him. Both of them were pretty calm, I thought. At least they were still doing stuff, rather than freaking out. Oh, man, said Carl. He'd sat Mike up, and then had to catch him again as he fell backwards. Out in the light, I saw that I'd waited just a second too long, perhaps from some subconscious dislike of the man. The last few vampire bites had not been just of Mike's helmet. What, what do we do? asked Susan. She turned to me, pointedly not looking at her dead husband. I'm sorry, I said. I really meant it, particularly since it was my slackness that had let the vamp finish him off. Mike was an idiot, but he didn't deserve to die, and I could have saved him. But he's got to be dealt with the same way as the vampires now. Then you and Carl have to go down and clean out the rest, otherwise they'll kill you too. It usually helps to state the situation clearly, stave off the shock with the need to do something life-saving. Adrenaline focuses the mind wonderfully. Susan looked away for a couple of seconds. I thought she might vomit, but I'd underestimated her again. She turned back, and still holding her pistol in her right hand, reached into a thigh pocket and pulled out a quick flame. I should be the one to do it, she said. Carl stepped back as she thumbed the quick flame and dropped it on the corpse. The little cube deliquesced into a jelly film that spread over the torso of what had once been a man. Then, as it splashed on the floor, it woofed a light, burning blue. Susan watched the fire. I couldn't see much of her face, but from what I could see, I thought she'd be okay for about an hour before the shock knocked her off her feet, provided she got on with the job as soon as possible. You better get going, I said. If this one was already up here, the others might be out and about. Don't get ahead of your flares. Right, muttered Carl. He took another flare from a belt pouch. Ready, Susan? Yes. Carl tossed the flare down the stairs. They both waited to see the glow of its light come back up. Then Carl edged in, working the angle, his pistol ready. He fired almost immediately, two double taps, followed by the sound of a vamp falling back down the stairs. Put two more in, I called out, but Carl was already firing again. And stake it before you go past. 
I added as they both disappeared down the stair. As soon as they were gone, I checked the smoldering remains of Mike. Quick flame cubes are all very well, but they don't always burn everything, and if there's a critical mass of organic material left, then the vamp nanos can build a new one. A little, slow one, but little slow ones can grow up. I doubted there'd been enough exchange of blood to get full infestation, but it's better to be sure. So I took out the splinter again and waved it over the fragments that were left. The sound of rapid gunshots began to echo up from below us as I took off my t-shirt and tucked it in the back of my board shorts. The towel cross on my chest was already glowing softly with a silver light, the smart matter under the scars energizing as it detected vamp activity close by. I couldn't see the one on my back, but it would be doing the same thing. Together, they were supposed to generate a field that repulsed the vampires and slowed them down if they got close, but it really only worked on the original versions. The latter-day generations of vampires were such bad copies that a lot of the original tech built to deter them simply missed the mark. Fortunately, being bad copies, the newer vampires were weaker, slower, less intelligent, and untrained. I took the main stairs up to the fourth floor. The ancient vampire would already know I was coming, so there was no point in skulking up the elevator shaft or the outside drain. Like its broodmates, it had been bred to be a perfect soldier at various levels of conflict, from the nanonic front line where it tried to replicate itself and its enemies, to the gross physical contest of actually duking it out. Back in the old days, it might have had some distance weapons as well. But if there was one thing we'd managed right in the original mission, it was taking out the vamp weapons caches and resupply nodes. We did a lot of things right in the original mission. We succeeded rather too well, or at least so we thought at the time. If the victory hadn't been so much faster than anticipated, the boss would never have had those years to fall in love with humans and then work out his crazy scheme to become their living god. Not so crazy, perhaps, since it kind of worked even after I tried to do my duty and stop him. In a half-hearted way, I suppose, because he was team leader and all that, but he was going totally against regulations. I reported it, and I got the order. And the rest, as they say, is history. Using the splinter always reminds me of him and the old days. There's probably enough smart matter in the wood encasing his DNA and his last download to bring him back complete, if and when I ever finish the assignment and can signal for pickup though a court would probably confirm HQ's original order, and he'd be slowed into something close to a full stop anyway. But my mission won't be over until the last vamp is burned to ash, and this infested earth can be truly proclaimed clean. Which is likely to be a long, long time, and I remind myself that daydreaming about the old days is not going to help take out the ancient vampire ahead of me, let alone the many more in the world beyond. I took out the splinter and the silver knife, and slung my Pan Am bag so it was comfortable, and got serious. I heard the ancient moving around as I stepped into what was once the outer office. The big pot was surrounded by soil, and there were dirty footprints up the wall, but I didn't need to see them to know to look up. The vamps have a desire to dominate the high ground heavily programmed into them. They always go for the ceiling, up trees, up towers, up lampposts. This one was spread-eagled on the ceiling, gripping with its foreleg and trailing leg filaments, as well as the hooks on what humans thought were fingers and toes. It was pretty big as vamps go, perhaps nine feet long and weighing in at around 200 pounds. The ultra-thin waist gave away its insectoid heritage, almost as much as a real close look at his mouth would. Not that you would want a real close look at a vamp's mouth. It squealed when I came in, and it caught the tau emissions. 
The squeal was basically an ultrasonic alarm oscillating through several wavelengths. The cops outside would hear it as an unearthly scream, when in fact it was more along the lines of a distress call and an emergency rally beacon. If any of its brood survived down below, they'd drop whatever they might be doing or chewing and rush up. The squeal was standard operating procedure, straight out of the manual. It followed up with more orthodox stuff, dropping straight onto me. I flipped on my back and struck it with the splinter, but the vamp managed to flip itself in midair and bounce off the wall, coming to a stop in the far corner. It was fast. Faster than any vamp I'd seen for a long time. I'd scratched it with the splitter, but no more than that. There was a line of silver across the dark red chitin of its chest, where the transferred smart matter was leeching the vampire's internal electrical potential to build a bomb. But it would take at least five seconds to do that, which was way too long. I leapt and struck again as we conducted a kind of crazy ballet across the four walls, ceiling, and floor of the room. Anyone watching would have gotten motion sickness or eyeball fatigue trying to catch blurs of movement. At 2.350 seconds in, it got a forearm around my left elbow and gave it a good hard pull, dislocating my arm at the shoulder. I knew then it really was ancient and had retained the programming needed to fight me. My joints have always been a weak point. It hurt. A lot. And kept on hurting through several microseconds as the vamp tried to actually pull my arm off and at the same time twist itself around to start chewing on my leg. The Tau field was discouraging the vamp, making it dump some of its internal nanoware so that blood started geysering out of pinholes all over its body, but this was more of a nuisance for me than any major hindrance to it. In mid-somersault, somewhere near the ceiling, with a thing trying to wrap itself around me, I dropped the silver knife. It wasn't a real weapon, not like the splinter. I kept it for sentimental reasons as much as anything, though the silver did have a deleterious effect on younger vamps. Since it was pure sentiment, I suppose I could have left it in coin form, but then I'd probably be forever dropping some in combat and having to waste time later picking them up. Besides, when silver was still the usual currency and they were still coins, I'd got drunk a few times and spent them, and it was way too big a hassle getting them back. The vamp took the knife dropping as more significant than it was, which was one of the reasons I'd let it go. In the old days, I would have held something serious in my left hand, like a de-weaving wand, which the vampire probably thought the knife was, and it wanted to get it and use it on me. It partially let go of my arm as it tried to catch the weapon, and at that precise moment, second 2.355, I fainted with the splinter, slid it along the thing's attempted forearm block, and reversing my elbow joint, stuck it right in the forehead. With the smart matter already at work from its previous scratch, internal explosion occurred immediately. I had shut my eyes in preparation, so I was only blown against the wall and not temporarily blinded as well. I assessed the damage as I wearily got back up. My left arm was fully dislocated with the tendons ripped away, so I couldn't put it back. It was going to have to hang for a day or two, hurting like crazy till it self-healed. Besides that, I had severe bruising on my lower back and ribs, which would also deliver some serious pain for a day or so. I hadn't been hurt by a vamp as seriously for a long, long time, so I spent a few minutes searching through the scraps of mostly disintegrated vampire to find a piece big enough to meaningfully scan. Once I got it back to the jumper, I'd be able to pick it apart on the atomic level to find the serial number on some of its defunct nanoware. I put the scrap of what was probably skeleton in my flight bag, with a splinter and silver knife, and wandered downstairs. 
I left it unzipped because I hadn't heard any firing for a while, which meant either Susan and Carl had cleaned up, or the vamps had cleaned up Susan and Carl. But I put my t-shirt back on. No need to scare the locals. It was surprisingly clean, considering. My skin and hair sheds vampire blood, so the rest of me looked quite respectable as well. Apart from the arm hanging down like an orangutan's, that is. I calculated the odds at about five to two that Susan and Carl would win, so I was pleased to see them in the entrance lobby. They both jumped when I came down the stairs, and I was ready to move if they shot at me, but they managed to control themselves. Did you get them all? I asked. I didn't move any closer. Nine, says Carl. Like you said, nine holes in the ground, nine burned vampires. You didn't get bitten. Does it look like we did? asked Susan, with a shudder. She was clearly thinking about Mike. Vampires can infect with a small, tidy bite, I said, or even about a half cup of their saliva via a kiss. Susan did throw up then, which is what I wanted. She wouldn't have if she'd been bitten. I was also telling the truth. While they were designed to be soldiers, the vampires were also made to be guerrilla fighters, working amongst the human population, infecting as many as possible in small, subtle ways. They only went for the big chow down in full combat. What about you? said Carl. You okay? You mean this? I asked, threshing my arm about like a tentacle, wincing as the pain made it ten times worse. Dislocated, but I didn't get bitten. Neither had Carl. I was now sure. Even newly infected humans have something about them that gives their condition away, and I can always pick it. Which means we can go and sit by the fence and wait till morning. I said cheerily, You've done well. Carl nodded wearily and got his hand under Susan's elbow, lifting her up. She wiped her mouth, and the two of them walked slowly to the door. I let them go first, which was kind of mean, because the VET have been known to harbor trigger happy snipers. But there was no sudden death from above, so we walked over to the fence, and then the two of them flopped down on the ground, and Carl began to laugh hysterically. I left them to it and wandered over to the gate. You can let me out now, I called to the sergeant. My work here is almost done. No one comes out until after dawn, replied the guardian of the city. Except me, I agreed. Check with Lieutenant Harmon. Which goes to show that I can read ID labels, even little ones on metal mesh skin suits. The sergeant didn't need to check. Lieutenant Harmon was already looming up behind him. They had a short but spirited conversation. The sergeant told Carl and Susan to stay where they were, which was still lying on the ground, essentially in severe shock, and they powered down the gate for about 30 seconds and I came out. Two medics came over to help me. Fortunately, they were VET, not locals, so we didn't waste time arguing about me going to the hospital, getting lots of drugs, injected, having scans, etc. They fixed me up with a collar and cuff sling so my arm wasn't dragging about the place. I said thank you, and they retired to their unmarked ambulance. Then I wandered over to where Jenny was sitting on the far side of the silver truck, her back against the rear wheel. She'd taken off her helmet and balaclava, letting her bobbed brown hair spring back out into shape. She looked about 18, maybe even younger, or maybe a little older. A pretty young woman, her face made no worse by evidence of tears, though she was very pale. She jumped as I tapped a little rhythm on the side of the truck. Oh, I thought, aren't you meant to stay inside the, the cordon? I hunkered down next to her. 
Yeah, most of the time they enforce that, but it depends, I said. How are you doing? Me? I'm, I'm, I'm okay, so you got them? We did, I confirmed. I didn't mention Mike. She didn't need to know about that, not now. Good, she said. I'm sorry. I thought I would be braver, only when the time came... I understand, I said. I don't see how you can, she said. I mean, you went in, and you said you fight vampires all the time. You must be incredibly brave. No, I replied. Bravery is about overcoming fear, not about having it. There's plenty I'm afraid of, just not vampires. We fear the unknown, she said. You must know a lot about vampires. I nodded and moved my flight bag around to get more comfortable. It was still unzipped, but the sides were pushed together at the top. How to fight them, I mean, she added, since no one really knows anything else. That's the worst thing. When my sister was in, infected, and then later when she was, was killed, I really wanted to know, and there was no one to tell me anything. What did you want to know? I asked. I've always been prone to show off to pretty girls. If it isn't surfing, it's secret knowledge. Though sharing the secret knowledge only occurred in special cases, when I knew it would go no further. Everything we don't know, sighed Jenny. What are they, really? Why have they suddenly appeared all over the place in the last ten years, when we all thought they were just, just made up? They're killing machines, I explained. Bioengineered, self-replicating guerrilla soldiers, dropped here kind of by mistake a long time ago. They've been in hiding, mostly, waiting for a signal or other stimuli to activate. Certain frequencies of radio waves will do it and the growth of cell phone use. So what, vampires get irritated by cell phones? A smile started to curl up one side of her mouth. I smiled too, and kept talking. You see, way back when, there were these good aliens and these bad aliens, and there was a gigantic space battle. Jenny started laughing. Do you want me to do a personality test before I can hear the rest of the story? I think you'd pass, I said. I had tried to make her laugh, even though it was kind of true about the aliens in the space battle. Only there were just bad aliens, and even worse aliens. And the vampires had been dropped on Earth by mistake. They had been meant for a world where the nights were very long. Jenny kept laughing and looked down, just for an instant. I moved at my highest speed, and she died laughing. The splinter working instantly on both human nervous system and the 24 hours old infestation of the vampire nanoware. We had lost the war, which was why I was there, cleaning up one of our mistakes. Why, I would be on Earth for countless years to come. I felt glad to have my straightforward purpose, my assigned task. It is too easy to become involved with humans, to want more for them, to interfere with their lives. I don't want to make the boss's mistake. I'm not human, and I don't want to become human or make them better people. I was just going to follow orders, keep cleaning out the infestation, and that was that. The bite was low on Jenny's neck, almost at the shoulder. I showed it to the VET people and asked them to do the rest. I didn't stay to watch. My arm hurt, and I could hear a girl laughing somewhere deep within my head.
been a lot of discussion in recent years over how the standard horror tropes have been diluted by their commercial success. The last few years in particular, these people say, have been awful for horror, as the paranormal romance subgenre brings the vampires, werewolves, fae and others out into the light where frequently they take their clothes off and events take the sort of turn that can only really be soundtracked by wild wild pedal electric guitar solos and really heroically bad 80s synth music. Then, of course, there's the Twilight Leviathan and the endless knockoffs of that as vampires become angst-ridden, powder-faced boys followed around by wispy emo girls who want nothing more than to be with them whilst werewolves get the but I think of you as a friend, just with teeth and fur speech. I went to FantasyCon in Nottingham a few weeks ago and the Twilight hate there was palpable. It had even got as far as some authors who were complaining about getting snotty emails from people demanding to know why their books weren't just like Twilight, why their vampires didn't have colossal, improbably moosed hair. Finally, there's the relentless parade of remakes and franchises that pass for horror cinema. The Saw series continues unabated, the Halloween remakes are somehow a series in their own right, and somewhere deep under Hollywood, a hideously disfigured miner sentenced to life unearthing crappy 70s horror movies, hacks away at the coal scene with a pickaxe stained with something just awful, not in his terrible revenge. The stars are aligned, the wild hunt is loose, and horror is its victim, being torn apart in the jaws of popular culture. And you know what? I think that's great. Because horror is popular culture now. A genre that my entire life was viewed as being the sole purview of 14-year-olds in death metal shirts is now huge, big, international business. The monsters aren't just being dragged out into the light. They're running headlong towards it, praying for a movie deal. Some people bemoan that as a telling example of the commercialisation of literature. I contend those people have never found themselves paying for that month's food or rent with the fee from a script sale. Writing is tough in every way you can imagine it to be, and then some more you haven't even thought of, and believe me, most of the writers I know would gnaw their arms off, not only for the sort of success a lot of genre authors now enjoy, but also for the sort of mainstream acceptance that comes with it. Because when you can point at a rack of books that include Stoker, Poe, Lovecraft, Shelley and King, and say, I do what they do. That's my book, next to theirs. That's a hell of a day at the office. Even more importantly, a lot of these authors do really good work. Kelly Armstrong's Rachel Morgan series are great, following a jobbing magic user, her completely terrifying vampire partner, and their face sidekick as they struggle to make ends meet in a world where being supernatural means you're just another ethnic minority. Likewise, Carrie Vaughan's Dr. Kitty series are superb, following a female werewolf who accidentally starts a radio talk show for the slightly more or less human. A huge fun, smart, dark, character-driven stories that look at what it's like to deal with immense change in life, both physical and psychological, through the lens of supernatural change. These are intelligent, entertaining, good books, and if you're even remotely interested in horror, you need to seek them out, because this is where the future is being shaped. It's happening everywhere, too, in every aspect of genre fiction, just in case you were genuinely starting to get worried you'd accidentally downloaded a pseudopod episode. Alistair Reynolds' colossal recent book deal is one example. John Scalzi's creative consultancy gig on Stargate Universe is another. The deals that have propelled Scott Sigler and JC Hutchins into bookshops around the world are a third. There was a debate on Newsnight over here a few days ago, 
about whether cult is the new mainstream, and for me, it isn't even a conversation. It isn't even a question. Of course it is. It's been that way for years, and it's only now that people are starting to notice. We've lived on the dark side of the street for so long that we've almost forgotten what it's like over here in the light, but this change is happening everywhere and it's only getting faster. For example, three years ago, the very idea a science fiction novel could be nominated for the Booker, let alone win it, would have been laughed at. This year, it was and remains a serious, ongoing discussion. So welcome to your future, the one where the wild things are, the one where the brave new world has no dark second meaning, the one built by the hands and minds of your heroes and your peers and yourself. Enjoy it. You deserve to. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is powered by Red Matter. But we're still not actually sure what that does, so why not just click on the PayPal button instead? It's far less likely to cause interstellar war, and it's easier. Also, why not check out Podcastle, our fantasy show, and Pseudopod, our horror show. Again, both clickable from the sidebar. Our closing quote this week is from a little-known English author. Oh wonder, how many goodly creatures are there here, how beauteous mankind is. Oh brave new world that has such people in it.